Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Francis Saville Kent was a flaxen-haired, precocious little boy, absolutely adored by his family. Even though his dad had had many children before him, seriously, Samuel Kent had ten kids before and then another two after, there was something about three-year-old Francis Saville that endeared him more than most. So when his nursemaid awoke one June morning and didn't see him in his bed, she didn't think twice about it. Surely, one of the boy's parents had heard him crying in the night, and he, being the family favorite, was probably nestled in bed with them now. But when the boy's mother woke up without him, panic enveloped the household, kicking off a terrifying case that would pit high class against low and influence literature for decades to come. Now, the start of this case might sound familiar. A little boy, still a toddler, disappeared from his own bed one night, despite his whole family being home when it happened. If you listen to season one's Lindbergh Baby episode, this might feel a bit deja vu. But this case came 72 years earlier than that one, and it occurred in Old England, not the newer version. Not only that, but the mystery surrounding who done it makes this one of the most compelling cases of the 19th century. It began June 29, 1860, in Wiltshire, England. If you had asked the little boy's age, he would have been just weeks shy of holding up four fingers in reply. Though his first name was legally Francis, he went by his middle name and his father's mother's maiden name, Saville. That's how everybody knew him, and that's what we'll call him from here on. Saville was described as a sturdy toddler, hefty enough that his mother could no longer carry him, not because she was inherently weak, but because she was eight months pregnant. And if you've ever been pregnant, you know that the game changes the closer you get to your due date. Saville's mother was not mother to all of Samuel Kent's children. Kent had been born in 1800 in Middlesex and was one of six children. At least, I think it was six. That's what I could find through a genealogy search. He'd been married the first time in 1829 to a dark-haired beauty named Marianne. Marianne had borne him nine children that survived. She'd actually had at least four others who died in infancy. Marianne was said to be mentally unstable, she died in 1852, when her youngest child, Constance, was eight years old. For a while, Samuel Kent made his money in preserved meats and pickles, but by the time he remarried, he was a factory inspector whose job was to root out instances of illegal child labor. The year after Marianne's death, Kent married the children's governess, a younger woman named Mary Drew. She gave birth within a year, though that first child was stillborn. Her first child to live was a little girl named Mary Amelia, born in 1855. 
The next year came Francis Saville, followed in 1858 by Baby Evelyn. Come June 1860, when this story takes place, she was weeks away from giving birth to another son. Now, the Kent family had its fair share of critics. First, there was Samuel's job, which was prestigious in that it was a government job. But Samuel himself was actually loathed by many of his neighbors simply because they didn't like what that job entailed. Author Kate Summerscale. He was responsible for enforcing the Factory Act of 1833, devised principally to protect children from overwork and injury, which was resented by mill owners and workers alike. Now, it might be a little hard to grasp why that could be viewed as a bad thing, but the deal was that working-class families sent their young children to work because the family needed money. They were poor, so the kids went to work. In the early 19th century, people were starting to think, geez, maybe we shouldn't work kids to death. So in England, they passed the Factory Act of 1833, which was not applauded by everyone, especially people who counted on their kids' income to help feed the family. The new law didn't forbid child labor, to be clear, but it did put limitations on how long kids could work. If you were between the ages of 13 and 17, you were restricted to 12 hours a day. If you were age 9 through 12, you could only work 8 hours a day. Can you imagine being 9 and having your work hours curtailed to 8 per day? It sounds crazy to us now, but in the 1700s, kids worked all the time. It was thought to be good for them. For example, take the Foundling Hospital in London. Founded in 1739 by a philanthropist, the children's home was designed to take in poor and deserted kids to give them jobs. The thinking was that teaching kids hard labor at a young age, and I'm talking starting around four or five, would lead them to being upright citizens capable of supporting themselves. According to the Economic History Review, more than 13,000 pieces of underwear and 19,000 pairs of stockings were made by foundling children from 1761 to 1770. But the new century brought changing attitudes and it was Samuel Kent's job to enforce the Factory Act. Factory inspectors, like police inspectors, were agents of surveillance. Kate Summerscale wrote a book about this case called The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. Here, she's reading a passage. Samuel Kent had recently turned more than 20 boys and girls under the age of 13 out of a local mill, depriving them of their earnings of three or four shillings a week. But there were other reasons neighbors didn't adore the Kents as well. For starters, they'd moved to the big Road Hill house five years earlier, and when they came, they made it clear they weren't going to be the most neighborly of neighbors. Samuel built a huge fence around his property and posted no trespassing signs by the river that ran through it. People living nearby were used to being allowed to fish in that river, so suddenly having that cut off from them felt problematic, especially because the Kents were well off, living in a limestone house considered one of the finest in the area, with a curved driveway lined with yews and elms. Their house overlooked the River Frome, as well as smaller houses and cottages inhabited by the neighbors that they had pissed off. There also had been rumors that didn't help the situation, which, if you caught earlier that the guy married his children's nanny, probably isn't a surprise. The second Mrs. Kent had lived with the family while the first Mrs. Kent was still alive. 
Some whispered that the governess and her employer seemed to be awfully close even before they were married. And this was the Victorian age, which was an era of remarkable contradictions when it came to sex. On one hand, the people were so squeamish about talking about sex. On the other hand, as this documentary says, Victorian London's sex industry was vast. There were an estimated 55,000 prostitutes, about one for every 20 adult men. In other words, times were both promiscuous and prudish. And when it came to rumors of affairs, the judgment flowed freely. Regardless, little Savile Kent went to bed as usual on the night of June 29, 1860, a Friday. He shared the room with his younger sister, Evelyn. The children's nursemaid, a young woman named Elizabeth Gow, slept in the same room. Some of Kent's older children lived in the house still, too. Daughters Mary and Elizabeth shared a bed upstairs in a room that people of the day considered to be servant quarters. Those two were in their 20s, and it seemed probably destined to stay there as old maids. Also in the house were 15-year-old William and 16-year-old Constance. The two teens had their own rooms on the same floor as Savile's. The last youngster, half-sister to Constance and William, shared a room with her parents, Mary Drew and Samuel. Now, these sleeping arrangements might seem banal, but they're actually pretty telling. Affluent mid-Victorians usually preferred to keep the servants apart from the family and the children in their own quarters. Here, the nursemaid slept feet away from the master bedroom, and the five-year-old slept with her parents. The other servants and the stepchildren were thrown together on the top floor like so much lumber in an attic. The arrangement marked out the lower status of the children of the first Mrs. Kent. A bit before 6 a.m. on the 30th, nursemaid Elizabeth woke up and went to rouse Savile, as she did every morning. When he wasn't there, she didn't get worried. His bed didn't look disturbed. Everything was neatly folded and looked peaceful. She could even still see the outline of his body in the bed. Besides, the whole house had been full that night. William and Constance, both of whom normally attended boarding school, were back home for a break. There was a dog on the property. The window shutters were open, but the windows locked from the inside. So nothing jumped out at Elizabeth as a miss. She turned her attention to baby Evelyn and carried on with her morning routine. A few hours later, Mary Drew woke up and opened her bedroom door. Elizabeth asked, are the children awake? Mrs. Kent seemed confused. Only one child shared the bedroom with her. Elizabeth said, yeah, but isn't Savile with you? Once it was clear that wasn't the case, things got crazy at the Kent house. The thinking at first was that little Savile Kent had been kidnapped. It seemed a ridiculous thought because how on earth would a stranger have gotten past all of the family members and the dog to boot? But the alternative was to think that someone within the household was the cause of his disappearance, and that was just too scary to consider, at least at first. Samuel Kent rushed from home to alert police. Once he reached somebody by horse, remember, horseless carriages were still several decades away, he didn't turn around to go back home straight away. Rather, he went on to the nearby village Trowbridge to find a police superintendent there whom he knew. Back at the Road Hill house, everyone was searching for Savile. They checked all the obvious places, 
playrooms, closets, the kitchen, I mean, everywhere. Indoor plumbing hadn't reached the house yet, so two men decided they should check the outhouse, or privy. As soon as they opened the door, one of them got an ominous feeling, a feeling that only swelled when they stepped inside and spotted blood on the wooden floor. When they lifted the seat to the privy, they found the boy. His throat had been cut, and he had been thrown down an outside privy or lavatory in the grounds of the house. Murdered. It was unfathomable. He was a boy, sleeping in his own bed, stolen in the night, slashed across the throat almost to decapitation, and then tossed into a vat of human waste. He was still wrapped in his baby blanket, which was soaked with blood. Once removed from the soil, to put it delicately, it was clear he'd been stabbed as well as slashed. A wound went through his chest. Around his mouth was strangely dark, too, as though someone had pressed too tightly, maybe trying to keep him from crying, or maybe even to suffocate him. Next to him had been a flannel bit of cloth that women wore on top of their breasts beneath their corsets. It, too, was bloodied, and none of the women in the house claimed it as theirs. Samuel was already on his way back home when someone stopped him and told him the awful news. He was heartbroken. He'd adored that little boy, and though he had endured a lot of tragedy in his 60 years alive, including the death of an adult son to yellow fever, he never could have imagined someone targeting an innocent little boy for murder. Immediately, there was a local and indeed national outcry about who could have done this horrific deed, and um, the local police investigated. Now let's talk about policing in the mid-1800s. Things were rapidly changing in this era. I mean, sure, you still had some people touting crazy ideas like the human eye stores images like a camera, so you should be able to find Savile's killer in his retina. And, hey, I'm a phrenologist, so let me feel everyone's head for weird bumps because I can ID a killer by the shape of his skull. Fingerprints and blood typing were still a few decades off, too, but there were some developments burgeoning like the concept of confirmation bias. And they didn't call it that, but they absolutely were catching on to the notion that police sometimes went in assuming they knew the culprit when, in fact, it was someone they had never considered. Believe it or not, investigators in this era were also realizing that confessions and eyewitnesses were shaky grounds for conviction. Anytime you're relying on a human, you have to leave room for a pretty hefty margin of error. That's why people were becoming enamored with the notion of smarty-pants detectives. Summer Scale's book is a lot of fun because it looks at this true case while also analyzing the role that fiction of the time was shaping public perception about detective work. The first fictional detective was C. Auguste Dupin in Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders at the Rue Morgue, published in 1841. Dupin wasn't a pro, but he was incredibly smart and curious and used what Poe called ratiocination, basically a combination of rational thinking, inference, and maybe a little imagination. These were characters who talked little while watching tirelessly. They noticed affect and voice tone and body language. They saw clues where others saw coincidence. And they weren't just in fiction. 
In the real world, the London police had launched the detective branch of the Metro Police in 1842. There were eight original members, two inspectors and six sergeants, and they were tasked with more than the street patrolling that watchmen handled. These eight handled the big stuff, most notably murders. In 1849, they'd solved their first big one when a woman and her husband were convicted of killing the woman's lover in a case that became known as the Bermondsey Horror. That case marked the first time a husband and wife had been executed together since 1700, and oh, by the way, Charles Dickens attended the public execution. One of the detectives on that case would soon be dispatched to Roadhill House to investigate the horrific murder of Little Saville. His name was... Detective Inspector Jack Witcher. He was known as the Prince of Detectives. Dickens was a fan of his, among others. He was the favourite of the police commissioner. Witcher was apparently a pock-faced, exceedingly average-looking man who did not stand out in a crowd. He was five foot eight, with brown hair and blue eyes. But whatever his physical appearance, his mental acuity was what set him apart. William Wills, Charles Dickens' deputy, paid tribute in 1850 to Jack Witcher's brilliance by observing that the detective found the way even when every clue seems cut off. A plot was a knot, and a story ended in a denouement, an unknotting. As mentioned, the local police handled things at first, and they did an embarrassing job of it. Worried that they would offend this middle-class family, they didn't dare interview family members about what happened the night Saville was killed. After all, who could imagine someone of any social standing committing any crime, much less one so heinous? So instead, the officers at first interviewed the supposed lowlifes of the household, the servants especially. Suspicion, of course, turned first to the nursemaid, Elizabeth Gow. That's only logical considering she shared a room with Saville, yet supposedly wasn't disturbed by whoever came in to snatch him. The rumors started quickly. Maybe Elizabeth had a man in her room. Maybe Saville woke up and she attacked him to quiet him. Maybe she accidentally strangled him and then sliced his neck to conceal the cause of death. Maybe the man in her room was actually Samuel Kent, the boy's father. He had, after all, quickly married a different employee so soon after his wife's death. Elizabeth was taken in for questioning, but the 1860s were modern enough to require hard evidence, and police had to admit they had none. They simply had a theory. And Elizabeth was steadfast in refusing any part of the crime. Plus, no one in the household knew of her entertaining men, Samuel Kent or otherwise, and it didn't seem like the type of family that would have protected Samuel at all costs. Some in the home were clearly devastated by the death of Saville, Mrs. Kent especially. Two weeks after the murder, local police had gotten nowhere. That's when the Prince of Detectives stepped in. When Detective Jack Witcher arrived in Wiltshire on the Sunday, two weeks after the gruesome death of Saville Kent, he went straight to his hotel, the Woolpack Inn. I looked it up, and that inn, built in 1581, appears to still be in operation. Twin rooms start at nearly $600 a night. Back in 1860, of course, the rate was far lower, a sixpence or a half a shilling. In other words, about $3.25 today. 
Witcher had been christened Jonathan when he was born a few miles south of London in 1814 to Richard and Rebecca Witcher. Jack was his nickname. His family, which included at least four siblings, were lower class, living in what author Kate Summerscale describes as a wretched neighborhood. He's a working class man. He's a gardener's son, but from South London. Not anyone could enter the police force at the time. You had to pass literacy and physical exams, and you needed well-respected people in your community to vouch for your character. That helped ensure that police of the day were respected, but it was still understood that most came from lower-class backgrounds. It's tough for us today to imagine a world without police, but once upon a time, such a world existed. In England, keeping the peace was the responsibility of every citizen. Every citizen at some point would be tapped to serve a year's stint as constable. This was unpaid labor tacked on to whatever paying job the person might have. From a documentary. The duties were not popular and often unpleasant, with the constable having little chance to do his normal job properly. In the 1600s, those constables were supplemented by poorly paid watchmen, which in the 1700s morphed into full-time salaried jobs. Not everyone was thrilled about this progression. In a typically British way, both Parliament and people distrusted the idea of a uniform professional police force and resisted any such move because of the threat to individual freedom. This documentary is called History of the British Police Force. But attitudes were soon compelled to change. A great period of social unrest enveloped the country and culminated in a number of severe riots. A turning point came in 1819 with what became known as the Peterloo Massacre, in which a crowd of some 60,000 peaceful protesters had gathered to demand parliamentary reform. A cavalry was called, and in the end, nearly 20 people were killed and some 500 were wounded. When rioting occurred, the local authorities called in the army, who were not trained to cope with riots and crowd control. After all this strife, people were suddenly more open to the idea of professional policing. Ten years later, in 1829, the Metropolitan Police was formed to help keep London's increasingly packed streets a bit safer. Still, because of the individual liberties concerns, the 3,500 bobbies who'd started the force had been required to wear their uniforms even when they weren't on duty. The idea was that an officer could never be accused of concealing his identity, thus thwarting outcries of entrapment and privacy invasion. The way you could tell that an officer was on or off duty was by a band he wore around his wrist. Jack Witcher began as a bobby and was well-respected enough to be hand-picked to become a detective when that branch started in the 1840s. Those investigators were the first allowed to be in plain clothes. And this might seem like a small thing to us today. Plain clothes officers are pretty commonplace, after all. But back then, this was a huge shift. And an unwelcome one by some. The whole point of a detective like Witcher was to blend into the background, to watch, observe, take mental note. The plainer the detective, the better. He wanted to disappear to catch criminals in the act. 
That's how Witcher nailed a pair of counterfeiters in 1841, according to records kept by the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales, a.k.a. Old Bailey. Witcher watched Eliza Cooper and George Dean for about 15 minutes, saw Dean pass Cooper something, and then saw Cooper hand a fake half-crown to a storekeeper, and he arrested both suspects on the spot. The two tried to deny knowing each other, but Witcher had been watching, so he knew better. Dean and Cooper were both convicted and sentenced to a year and six months, respectively. By the time Witcher arrived to investigate Savile Kent's death, he was regarded as one of the nation's best detectives. It was quite a new phenomenon to have a detective, and they were slightly glamorous, heroic figures at this point. So it caused a stir when Witcher stepped into the investigation and politely, but firmly, disagreed with the local police's theory the one suggesting that the nursemaid had killed the boy to cover up some kind of sexual escapade. She was in custody, but it was becoming clear that the police did not have any evidence against her. Witcher interviewed Elizabeth Gow and simply didn't think she was the killer. He found nothing pointing at her beyond the original investigator's gut feelings. What he needed was well-preserved evidence. When the local police began investigating, they went out of their way to not bother family members. That remained true even when one of them found a bloodied shift, as in an undergarment, shoved inside a boiler hole. This is basically a small fire pit beneath a hot plate, which they used because electric stoves were still some 30 years away. The officer turned over the shift to a supervisor who immediately was grossed out and embarrassed because those stains looked like menstrual blood to him. He implored the officer to return it to the house, which the officer did, and after which it promptly disappeared. Not only did all that happen, that a piece of bloodied clothing was found and lost, but none of it was shared with this new Met detective, Witcher. He wouldn't learn about the bloodied shift until months after his investigation wrapped up. And he must have been pissed because he was looking for just such a garment. The reason why? Because Constance Kent, the 16-year-old daughter in the house, was missing one. When Detective Witcher zeroed in on Constance Kent as the most likely killer of her three-year-old brother Savile, he was met with more than pushback. It didn't help that he was a blue-collar city boy. All his work has been in London, really, and it's been working-class crime, as most crime um, was that he was called on to work with. And so he was able to cut a sort of heroic figure This was a very different thing because it was in the countryside and it wasn't to do with recognizing criminals and knowing the lay of the land, which was really his expertise till then. This time, Witcher wasn't trailing some known criminal. This was a family of good breeding. A completely different um, stratum society and a country setting where he knew none of the locals or the individuals. He got the backs up of the local police who very much resented his presence. And the suspect in his crosshairs was a 16-year-old girl. He was out of his comfort zone for sure and many people thought he was out of his depth as well and that he was making wild and cruel allegations about the family. 
To his credit, Witcher doesn't seem to have just put on blinders when it came to Constance. He didn't walk in, decide Constance was the culprit, and then twist the evidence to fit the theory. His handwritten notes at the time were littered with phrases like, if this theory proves correct, making it clear that he would follow the evidence wherever it led. But in his mind, it consistently led to Constance. Here was his thinking. For starters, Constance had been the daughter of Samuel's first wife, the Mrs. Kent who had died in 1852. The second Mrs. Kent had helped rear Constance and her brother, William, the youngest two from that first marriage. And in fact, both of those kids saw Mrs. Kent number two as a mother figure. But after their nanny actually became their stepmother and started having babies of her own, her affection toward the pre-existing Kent kids markedly waned. As someone whose stepmother once regularly referred to my sisters and me as the baggage, I can understand this to an extent. Several of Constance's friends told Witcher that she felt mistreated at home and that she was jealous of the attention lavished on her younger half-siblings. To Witcher, this seemed a sad and disturbing motive, sure, but a motive nonetheless. Also, Constance and William had tried to run away a few years before. The two, then ages 12 and 11 respectively, made the attempt about a year after the family moved to Road Hill. One day, Constance hid in the outhouse, the same one in which her half-brother would be discovered, and changed into some of William's clothes. She'd actually mended and hidden the clothes in the privy in preparation for the escape. Then she and William cut her hair short and threw the hair and her dress into the privy vault. The idea was for the siblings to get jobs as cabin boys and hit the open sea. They walked 10 miles to Bath and asked for a hotel room, but the innkeeper could see by their fine clothes and manners that they were runaways. Afterward, William sobbed and begged his dad for forgiveness, but Constance refused to apologize. She said only that she had wanted to be independent. To Witcher, this proved a few things. That Constance was unhappy enough with her home life to want to run away. That she had an impressive amount of resolve and ability to premeditate a scheme. And that she saw the outhouse as a place to discard things she wished to remain hidden. In short, the tale supported his view that Constance was the killer. Samuel Kent thought this was hogwash. Remember, he wasn't terribly well-liked by his neighbors. In his book, written back in 1861, family friend Joseph Stapleton, who also was a local surgeon, said that the Kent children were routinely harassed by other kids in town. That started before the murder and kept right on going afterward. Since Savile's death, Samuel had repeatedly voiced his suspicion that these cottagers had something to do with the murder. Charles Dickens, meanwhile, was certain the nursemaid had done it. It's funny to think of the Dickens we best know today, author of David Copperfield and Great Expectations and A Christmas Carol, commenting on the big news story of the day. But Dickens was a journalist first, editing magazines like Household Words and All the Year Round. And despite the many think pieces written these days about the growing popularity of true crime, the fact is, it's always infatuated the masses. Now, to a friend in Switzerland, Dickens wrote, quote, Not all the detective police in existence shall ever persuade me out of the hypothesis that the circumstances have gradually shaped out to my mind. 
The father was in bed with the nurse. The child was discovered by them, sitting up in his little bed, staring and evidently going to tell Ma. The nurse leaped out of bed and instantly suffocated him in the father's presence. The father cut the child about to distract suspicion, which was effectually done, and took the body out where it was found. End quote. He hypothesized that Samuel Kent had ditched the murder weapon when he left the house to alert police that his son was missing. The missing nightgown that so bothered Witcher was a red herring, he figured. Others weren't as solidly sold as Elizabeth Gow being the killer, but they still eyed the help. It was this sense, I think at the time, the affluent middle-class home was so kind of well walled in from the world, one like this anyway, but the servants were there. They were the, (laughs) you know, the dangerous, the potential spies and subversives. But there was no evidence. The case went cold and stayed cold for years. Witcher's reputation took a huge hit, and so did his confidence, it seems. He only had one murder case assigned to him after the Kent case, and when that one proved tricky too, the once-heralded Prince of Detectives was written off as inept. In March 1864, Witcher retired at age 49 because of congestion of the brain, according to his discharge papers. His head was just so full of the frustrations, the the knowledge he had and his inability to persuade anyone else of it. So he, he left the force apparently a broken man. He told many a friend that the Roadhill House murder would stay unsolved unless someone confessed. And in 1865, that's what happened. After his son's death, Samuel Kent and Mrs. Kent II had two more children. The youngest son of Mrs. Kent I, William, went back to boarding school. Constance, the 16-year-old daughter, was sent to a boarding home run by nuns, so basically a convent. Nearly five years after her half-brother's murder, Constance took a train from Brighton to the magistrate's court in central London on Bow Street. She handed Chief Magistrate Sir Thomas Henry a letter which read, quote, I, Constance Emily Kent, alone and unaided on the night of the 29th of June, 1860, murdered at Roadhill House, Wiltshire, one Francis Savile Kent. Before the deed was done, no one knew of my intention, nor afterwards of my guilt. No one assisted me in the crime, nor in the evasion of discovery. End quote. When Constance confessed, her pastor was by her side. He assured the court that he hadn't pressured her into saying anything publicly. If anything, he told her that the only forgiveness she needed to seek was from God. But Constance was adamant that she confess. She said she needed to do it to clear the names of the rest in the household because they'd been dragged through the muck for so long. I'm looking at you, Dickens. Now, her reason, she said, wasn't jealousy towards Savile. She said she felt no malice toward her little brother, but she had seen her stepmother usurp the role of her biological mother while the latter was still alive. And she also said she'd heard her stepmother disparage her mom time and again. These were kids whose mother had died being forced to listen to the new wife, Badmouth, her predecessor. She wanted Mary Drew to suffer. Constance had contemplated killing her, but decided that would be too quick a punishment. To ensure she inflicted the utmost pain on her stepmother, 
she decided to kill Little Savile, the family favorite. She sneaked into his room the night of June 29, 1860, and kept him wrapped in his blanket as she whisked him outside into the outhouse, past the family dog, who of course wouldn't bark at a family member. The little boy intrinsically trusted her so much that he never even woke up. Inside the privy, Constance had hidden matches previously to give her the light she would need to do the deed. She pulled a razor that she'd taken from her father's shaving kit and, while Saville was still asleep, slashed the poor boy's throat. He didn't bleed immediately and she panicked, which is why she stabbed him again in the chest. And then she dumped his body into the excrement below. Constance pleaded guilty. She was sentenced to death, but in fact sent to prison. At the time, being convicted of murder was an automatic death sentence. But in this case, Constance's age at the time of the crime and her willingness to step forward and take responsibility spared her life, which was a long one. She went into prison at 21 and emerged 20 years later, after which she assumed her middle name, Emily, and moved to Australia. There, she lived another 59 years, dying at age 100 in 1944. Her stepmother hadn't enjoyed such longevity. She died of lung congestion the year after Constance confessed. Samuel Kent died in 1872 while Constance was still in prison. Witcher had been right about the nightgown. Constance had gotten blood on it during the murder and tossed it, then arranged for another nightgown to get lost when the family sent out its weekly laundry. This caused enough confusion that many people dismissed the missing nightgown as a red herring and focused instead on that flannel breastcloth found inside the privy near the body. It turned out it was the breastcloth that was the red herring. No one ever fessed up to owning it, but wherever it came from, it apparently had nothing to do with the murder. It was just a random piece of cloth tossed into a shit pile. Oh, and interestingly, the bloodied shift that was found also wasn't connected to the case. In that instance, the police superintendent who dismissed the blood on it as menstrual was probably right. Just as Witcher told his bosses he suspected during his investigation, Constance had burned the nightgown she had worn while killing her little brother. To his credit, Witcher did not crow that he had been right. He seemed respectful that this was no win for anyone, least of all Samuel Kent, who had to live his remaining years knowing that his daughter killed his beloved baby son. But Witcher did get his groove back. Witcher was vindicated, but it was, it was too late for his career as a detective. But he became one of the early private inquiry agents or private detectives, and he had an extraordinarily successful career there. In fact, he's said to be one of the inspirations for arguably the most famous detective in history, Arthur Conan Doyle's classic character, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes made his literary debut in 1887 six years after Witcher died of natural causes at his home in South London. To research this story, Kate Summerscale's book, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, was vital and also fun to read. 
I dug through official court records stored at oldbaileyonline.org, read contemporary news coverage out of England, and perused far more of Charles Dickens' journalistic work than I needed to because it was just cool. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.